welcome to the Miscellaneous Podcast. This is Season 7, Episode 26. My name is Adil Ahmad, and I have Misophonia. This week, I'm excited to bring back on the show Dr. Jennifer Brout. Jennifer is a prolific writer and advocate for misophonia. As a reminder, she's a licensed counselor, psychologist, co-founder of the Duke University Center for Emotional Regulation, and the co-founder of the International Misophonia Research Network. In this episode, we talk about coping skills, family accommodations, the areas of research you'd like to see happen. We talk about neuroscience, epigenetics, even the possible role of evolution on misophonia and sensory disorders more broadly, and many other fascinating topics. I'm very excited to finally bring this call with Jennifer Brout to you. After the show, let me know what you think. You can reach me by email at hello at misophoniapodcast.com or hit me up on Instagram or Facebook at misophoniapodcast. By the way, uh, please head over Leave a quick review or rating wherever you listen to the show, whether it's Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps move us up in the search algorithms when people are looking for misophonia. A few of my usual announcements. Thanks for the incredible ongoing support of our Patreon supporters. If you feel like contributing, you can read all about the various levels at patreon.com slash misophoniapodcast. And of course, the book by Dr. Jane Gregory and I called Sounds Like Misophonia, which is a self-help guide to misophonia is available everywhere from Bloomsbury Publishers. Let me know what you think. You can find it online or at your favorite bookstore. This episode is also sponsored by Basil, B-A-S-A-L, the personal journaling app that I developed for iOS and Android. Basil provides AI-powered insights into your journal entries and guides you with new writing prompts daily based on those insights. You can explore different therapy approaches, modalities, it's available for iOS and Android. Go to hellobasil.com or check the show notes. All right. Now, here's my conversation with Dr. Jennifer Brout. Jennifer, welcome again to the podcast. Great to have you back. Thank you, Adil. It's great to be back. Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, of course, people people know you, but there might be some first-time listeners. Do you kind of want to just remind people you know, sure. where you are, who, what you do? Sure. So, I am Jennifer Brout. I am a... I have a doctorate in child and clinical psychology and school psychology. And I have a daughter with misophonia who's now a grown up. And I have misophonia. And I have been working in this field for over 30 years and, or close to 30 years. And when my daughter started to go through these problems with misophonia, which for her started at a very young age, two and a half, maybe, maybe three. I was very disappointed in what was offered as therapy or even the lack of kindness that I got from other people in my field, which is why I started looking. I had a small family, very small family foundation at the time, and I started to look to really change the field. And I started a program at Duke, which was the sensory processing and emotion regulation program, where we were focused on what we were then calling auditory over responsivity. And a couple of lines of research with Dr. Jolie Du that I funded. And I really have done my best to bring researchers together and get the research going. And it has gotten going. And I'm really excited about that. 
In addition to that, I do a lot of counseling for people with misophonia, particularly for parents and children. And I have coping skills classes. Right. I'll, I'll, just, I'll sum up my own way. I mean, you're a pioneer in the field. Uh, you helped start funding. Very prolific writer. So I'm oh, sure people right. read articles Oops. or read books and uh, have taken some of your classes. So, uh, yeah, very um, multidimensional um, person in the, in the field of misophonia. Um, so yeah, thanks for, thanks for everything you've done. And, uh, Thank you. what do you say, I guess now I know, I know this is still a hot topic for you. So a passion for you to, to yeah. think about what, what do you think about, um, how it's approached like family, family accommodations for misophonia, for example. I think that's a great question, the deal. And I know that's also been a hot topic and I've done so, I, I can't tell you the amount of thinking I've really done about this, both on, on a personal level and professional level. What I've come to realize, well, first of all, one of the things I'm really disappointed in, and not to be negative, is the lack of research that we're getting in terms of family and children. I'm very grateful that the research has taken off in misophonia, but I think by missing the developmental perspective, we're missing a lot. And I understand researchers have to start with adults because it is less expensive, it is easier, and there really are less sort of ethics that you have to worry about. However, having said that, we are still really suffering, I believe, from the lack of research, both developmentally and in terms of family functioning. And what I have found in terms of accommodations, it's a slippery slope. And what I was thinking earlier today, I was thinking, why would a psychologist or a psychiatrist or any therapist question whether you should accommodate or not accommodate? And I thought, what's behind that? And I thought, one would have to believe that children are by nature manipulative and that they're going to take these accommodations so that they can overpower the household or gain control of their classroom at school. And that's just not true. That's certainly not true of most children. And when we talk about accommodations within a family, what I feel is if you don't accommodate your child, you're sending a message, you don't matter. I don't believe you. The consequences of that that I've seen are earth shattering. On the other hand, you do have to gently guide your child to understand that they need to help themselves as much as they can when they are in a situation where they're triggered and give them those skills. So it's really a balance and it's a very difficult balance for families to achieve. Yeah, I, I agree. I feel like there needs to be a nuanced approach. And I feel like whenever this topic comes up, it seems to be looked at in a black and white way. Yes. And it's not. It's completely nuanced. And it has to, and everything, you know, when you're working with a family, it everything that you do as a therapist, and I think this is also true of research, has to take into consideration the culture of the family. What beliefs do the, does this family hold? about disability, about misophonia? What can you change to make family functioning better? What does the child understand about misophonia? And that's another thing I feel as though 
psychoeducation is really important because we don't know what misophonia is, but we do know what it does to somebody. So helping a child and helping family members to understand what that neurophysiological response is, is very empowering, I think, and very important. And another thing that kind of gets missed. Yeah. So um, I'd love to hear about kind of direct uh, research directions that that you think would be uh, that you think are missing. But maybe first, like what what do you tell families? um, (laughs) Again, it depends on the families. The first thing I start with is let's all get on the same page about what misophonia is. And I don't do that as an expert. I, I don't like the term misophonia expert. I wouldn't say that about myself and I wouldn't say that about anyone, which is controversial, but there are no experts. We, we have just started studying this. Right. There are no experts yet. And I feel the way to help a family, the first thing is psychoeducation. Let's get on the same page. This is what we know. This is what we don't know. This is what we're speculating about. Mm -hmm. And one of the questions, and this is something that Mary Petrie and I, I know you know Mary, talk about a lot. And I've learned a lot from her in terms of her understanding of how knowledge is produced. And one of the problems with families is that we're working in the unknown. And again, I have to credit Mary for this, not me. We're working in the unknown. And that's something that is really hard to accept for a family. So addressing that, what do you do when you're working in the unknown? And how do you cope with the idea that we don't have answers, we don't have treatments? So that's kind of the first thing, along with the psychoeducation. And then I work with coping skills based on the family's needs. I am a person who says, forget dinner. And a lot of people, just oh, because gotcha. of my own personal yeah. experience and, yeah. and time and time again, that's kind of a cultural thing in the United States that we're, I'm always working against. So I do post a lot about that as well on social media. Like there are other things you can do, things that involve movement, things that are not specific to what usually is the first and worst trigger. Not that there are not many other trigger sounds and visuals, but I find just anecdotally that we're talking about the that's a common place. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, that's a good point. I've heard I've heard that from yeah a couple couple other people where um, they've they've said uh, yeah you know our family just doesn't view dinner as the uh, bonding moment. We'd either take a walk or play games or something like that, and yeah. you kind of like get your food done on your own. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, by the time kids are in high school, really even middle school, dinner is over anyway. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, this one's at soccer, this one, you know, yeah. it's, it's not and worth For me personally, what I find is like being able to, even when I'm having dinner, being able to like not have to sit down, being able, know, knowing that I can move around is soothing enough where I can then kind of weave in and out and then my, my I can uh, regulate myself better if That's I exactly have options. It. You know, that's exactly it. The worst thing is to feel, first of all, movement helps misophonia, right? It is not a cure and you know, you can't always be moving, but there's no question that when your attention goes to your body, and I don't mean the kind of attention that you really control, but almost your unconscious attention, the free attention that alerts to sounds alerts to visuals. 
when that is pulled away naturally by movement, because when you're moving, you have to attend to your body or what would happen? We would fall, we would, you know. So just by shifting that pre-attention a little bit, mm. it can help a little. And I always say with misophonia, a little help goes a long way. Yeah. No, I, I agree. Yeah. And, and there's, it's different for everybody and whatever, yeah. whatever helps, uh, helps even if it's like, for me, I try to, if I can remember, remind myself to just kind of like talk to myself and, and remind myself that I'm not going to get attacked by some tiger in the, in the jungle or something from, yeah. from oppressed, uh, it, every, every little thing helps. Uh, I mean, that's the just crazy thing about misophonia, the really the amygdala, which is where fight mm -hmm. flight is mediated and really freeze fight flight. And we don't talk in, a lot about freeze, but that, that's also right. a thing. <laughs> but, you know, that kind of feeling of being immobilized, which is an interesting thing we could talk about today a little bit as well, but just to address the idea that the amygdala mediates fight flight and it happens within a millisecond and that adrenaline is in your body. It's, you know, there's no way to talk yourself down, I think, without a little bit of movement. If you can, that is so great. Mm -hmm. But for a lot of people, you need to really engage the whole body. Right, right. And that's, it's part of a theme that I've heard about just mind-body connection and also just yeah. kind of like getting closer to your, or just, um being more aware of your of your senses all five of them not just hearing. absolutely um in our you know our current society is not it's everything's kind of artificial and processed and prepackaged yeah but I've, I've thought about are we just kind of not able to process our, our senses as, as, well, as you're, naturally you're, you're as we right. used to we can't and it's so interesting because just going back historically and this is a little political but you know, the, the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual mm -hmm. for Mental Disorders, I was on the team that tried to get sensory processing disorders into the DSM. And it got in and then was rejected at the last minute by the editors. We will never know why. And one of the things that became apparent, and this was so, I, let me, that didn't become apparent, but let me take you back 25 years. And this is the context that many parents of children who are now adults with misophonia were living in. When you mentioned sensory, quote unquote, it was a dirty word. Psychiatry rejected it. Psychology rejected it. And the only people who believed in sensory, quote unquote, were occupational therapists. But this is very ironic at the time and still now. You ask any neuroscientist, right? You ask, for example, Dr. Joe Ledoux, who led all of the work in how emotions are processed in the brain. The first communication to your body and to your brain is through your senses from the outside world. So how can you say there's no sensory? It, it doesn't, pardon the pun, make any sense. And the atmosphere 25 years ago was so and why I said unkind at the beginning was you were crazy if you th believed in sensory. I mean, it, so 
SPD did not get into the DSM. Had it gotten into the DSM, I think we would have better room for misophonia and we'd have a better mm. understanding of what you were talking about. So do you know why it was, it was just because it's not specifically in the brain kind of thing? Is, is that why? Oh, it it's in the, it definitely is in the brain. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, these, the stimuli goes to your brain, gets processed in parts of the brain, and then the brain right. sends out messages to the body. And, you know, again, this is a process that happens so quickly, you never be aware of it. Why didn't it get in? I am hesitant to say this, but I will. I think at the time, the zeitgeist was just pro-medication, and I'm not against medication, pro-psychiatry, anti-anything else. And treatments, you know, we were in kind of really the expansion of neuroscience. And I think there was a lot of confusion. I also think we were still, and to some degree still are, in a real behaviorist mentality so the idea was, and again, 25 years ago was a lot worse than it is now. The idea is, well, at the point was, if you can't see the behavior, if you don't know what's underlying it, you know, you just treat the behavior. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that is a killer in misophonia and was in sensory processing. And it was just that nobody can make that shift. And there's still not a great shift. So if you can't see the behavior, then you treat the behavior. It, it, I mean, it feels like not wanting a professional is not wanting to dig deep into a root cause of something that they can't. I think see. I might have said that wrong. If you can't, okay. I sorry. If <laughs> all you can see is the behavior, so you just okay. treat the behavior. Okay, so gotcha, I mean, if you gotcha. can't, you know, yeah. so you only treat what you can see. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. And that, you know that was really from the fifties, sixties, and it. it takes a long time in psychiatry and in psychology and and certainly within DSM it takes it takes forever to get something in it takes committees it takes money it takes a huge amount of advocacy and this is also true of the international classification of diseases which is the ICD which is also used you know you just don't get something in so at some level, what gets in is really dictated by psychiatrists, by medical doctors as well. Mm -hmm. uh, well, psychiatrists are medical doctors, but it's not directed by people suffering from these diseases, disorders, illnesses. There's very, there was very little voice of the people who right. the real sort of lived experience didn't get included. Right. So if you're only treating what you can see, you're not treating what is only being felt maybe that's kind of what cause right as a sufferer we, we're feeling this we don't really know how to explain it other well, people can't see it well not only that it is not look in this day and age measuring a physiological response is easy and it's cheap now i'm not saying there isn't there, there are there is difficulty with physiologic da data for example mm -hmm. you know i could be running or I, and my heart rate might increase, or I could be sitting in a chair having an anxiety attack, you know, and there's nuances to how it, this is all measured. That was just a very gross way of putting it. So physiologic data is not always as perfect as one would think. However, in this day and age, to me, that should be the beginning of most research studies about misophonia, at least get the physiologic data. 
Right, right. Yeah, because uh, I was almost going to say it, like you can't see him as funny, but yeah, I, when when I'm <laughs> when we're all being triggered, you can definitely see when that something something's going on. It's measurable. It is yeah, absolutely yeah. measurable. So I guess maybe yeah, uh, then shifting into like where where do you where would you like to see research? Like how would you like to things? I know you asked me that before. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't answer. I'm so sorry. No, no, no. It's fine. It's kind of like how I like to weave around. Yeah. Okay. So. First, I would like to see, again, more family research, more research related to how families function. I would also like to see more rodent models. And I know that sounds a little... Interesting. Yeah. Um, And here's the reason. There was a great study that I funded that never, unfortunately, never was published. Not because it shouldn't have been published but because it, the person who was the PI had to leave the country. So, and, it, and then there was a pandemic, but there was a study that I funded with Joe Ledoux. Um, again, uh, he was at NYU, his lab, unfortunately, he's retired. His lab is closed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's still writing, but, and here was how it went. And we were looking, he was looking at the amygdala and part of the amygdala that was sort of the incoming sensory information versus the output of the amygdala. There's Mm. two separate sections. I'm not a neuroscientist, so excuse me, but I'll do my best. So here's how the experiment went. It was with rodents and the rodents were exposed to sound. I know this leaves out visuals, but you know, at the the best we could do at the time. So the rodents were exposed to sound and the rodents were then grouped. So some of the rodents were super responders to sound, meaning they went into that fight flight response, or in fact, they froze, which is interesting too. Some were high responders, some were typical responders, some were low responders. So you have a whole variety of how these rodents came in to the situation to begin with. Then very classic Pavlovian conditioning, which is what you want to do with rodents because, you know, you can see clearly because they don't have obviously the cerebral cortex the way that we do. They don't have as much of a thinking. Most of us do. Yeah. Right. Most most of us do. (laughs) Exactly. And what happened was the, we used repetitive sound because I personally think this is all about the repetition of sound and movement, Mm -hmm. but that's another story. So we used the repetition of sound paired with a very unpleasant stimuli, which I won't simulate, which I won't stimulus, which I won't mention because who needs to think about that. And normally a rodent can unlearn the association of the unpleasant stimulus and let's say the repeated sound. Mm -hmm. But guess what happened? These super responders were the group that couldn't unlearn. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now you could never do this in a human, obviously, with this, but what does that tell us? That tells us that if you're going, first of all, that a risk factor for misophonia may in fact be all the fact that you're already responsive to sound. Second, and I hate to say this, but this to me could indicate, I'm not saying it does, could indicate that these 
learning models we use in psychology are not going to work. Because if you can't unlearn that association, mm. you can't, you know, it's similar to trauma that way. You can't unlearn it. And I think we need to do more research like this before jumping into potential therapies, because all ther most therapies are learning based, really. How were they uh, in this experiment? How were they trying to unlearn? Was what was the method to try to unlearn it? You then associate the stimulus with something pleasant, and okay, so gotcha. eventually you would see. And and think about it, like, yeah. <laughs> so you know what I'm saying, Deal. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I would yeah. like to see more research. I don't want to torture animals by by any means, <laughs> I, and I feel right. badly about that. But we learn so much, so I'd like to see more research because this is basic science. This is the mm -hmm, science mm -hmm. that we can learn about the underlying mechanisms of, of misophonia. So that's one of the things I'd yeah. like to see. Super interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of out there it sounds, but I, you know, I hope that I think we'll, we have to learn about these basic processes and how they relate to misophonia before we jump into, okay, how do we fix this? We can't mm -hmm. fix something that we don't know what it is unless we just happen upon something by accident. Right, 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 right. And going back, you did mention uh, when, when we were starting out uh, something about um, obviously more research in family, um, like fa family research. You also mentioned development, like child development. Yes. Um, yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about, expand a little bit about sure. that? Because that's something very interesting to me as well, like what happened back in the day. Absolutely. <laughs> we don't know when misophonia starts. We know that people report it starts between eight and 12. But, you know, how would you know if you had misophonia when you were two years old? You don't right. necessarily, m most people don't remember being a two-year-old. So first of all, we need ways to understand what the early symptoms are. Mm. Now, in my case, I I'm like everybody else that remembers it starting at for me fourth grade so eight nine years old yeah yeah but again because i had it i recognized the symptoms in my daughter much younger so what i'm wondering is how much are we missing the best time to intervene is when a child is young right the younger yeah is the better we just know that yeah. that doesn't mean that when you're older you can't you're you know we have we know that with neuroplasticity, the brain keeps developing. Well, first of all, it develops continually until 29, I think it is now. It used to be 26. Before that, mm -hmm. it was 23. And we also know that older people, you know, the brain can change. But the best time for intervention is when a child is young. And I feel that without concentrating and focusing on what might be these earlier symptoms, we're missing the place to go in. So I would like to see more research that helps to identify what might be risk factors and when it really starts. So how, yeah, this, I'm curious and how would you, um, I guess you would have to just um, ask the general public to like, how would you get people? Cause you wouldn't know at that point. You need, at, right. you need to find it, yeah. you know, you need, there are, I certainly, get enough people coming to me and asking questions about this there you need to find the youngest cohort mm -hmm. the parents who are coming to you with the youngest cohort and start there 
what yeah. else could you do? That's yeah, the way to start. What did you see? And we need to take information from, let's say, sensory processing disorders, autism research, all, you know, yeah. all fields of, and even medical disorders. I mean, we, you know, I know Duke took an, a good, did a good survey on medical histories, but I don't think anyone else has. So we don't even have the medical histories of of these children or of these adults with misophonia. So we're missing this kind of vital information. So we would have to find, you know, first of all, parents who have identified something's going on here, you know, yeah. and that's how we would start. We'd yeah, have I think, questionnaires. We'd have to see right. what are the symptoms and we have to follow those children. So this is developmental research. Mm -hmm. It takes years. But at the end of the day, in 10 years, at least you have a better idea than if you don't do it. Right, right. And I think, I mean, just misophonia awareness is part of that first piece. Yeah. Then, then those parents might, you might reach more parents who will be able to identify something. Yeah, I mean, with my child, it was so obvious. I mean, she lit, and I've told you this before, and I always tell this mm. story. I mean, she literally, you know, I have triplets, so they were all sitting at the table and I'm you know, serving food going back and forth which again is very helpful for me and she literally just crawled took her plate crawled across the kitchen and sat in the living room i mean sorry mm. in the entryway and i was like well that's odd like you know and then within a few weeks and it does it still had that oh my gosh this is coming on like suddenly and then she would just cover her ears and say stop chewing with a very cute little <laughs> little kind of yeah. speech of a two and a half year old i'm like okay so maybe that's happening with lots of parents and right. they can identify that and they just don't know still yeah yeah, yeah we don't know right i mean she couldn't no. have been clearer i don't want to yeah. eat there the chewing bothers me and she's yelling and screaming and you know her hands are like this mm -hmm. over her ears what's up i mean i can't imagine my daughter was the only one to give such a clear signal yeah, yeah. At such an early age, it can't be. And I've, I've, yeah, I've had a few people come on and say that they, they know that at a, at a very young age that they that they had it. Obviously, most people in the eight to twelve right. bell curve, but uh, right. there are some outliers. And but yeah, but maybe those eight to twelves did have just don't remember or yeah. parents were not able to identify it. So, I mean, memory um, is such an elusive memory. If there's anything that confuses me in life besides genetics and epigenetics, memory. Yeah. Memory is the most confusing part of psychology, yeah, yeah. I think, and neuroscience. Right, it's really right. elusive. Um, you mentioned epigenetics. That's something that uh, uh, I, I loved. I remember specific, I tell people I loved talking to you about that. So that was, and you were very enlightening, enlightening about that topic. Um, is that something you're still thinking about these, these you know, days? It's so, and, it's so <laughs> funny because I feel like you know, as I just said, I mean, for me to be enlightening people about epigenetics is is almost funny because I'm constantly talking to geneticists who are, and I'm like, wait, what's explain this again? But I think if you ever want to have, by, by the way, someone come on and really explain epigenetics, Michael Menino. Oh yeah, of course. Right. Really I need to read but my that. little definition of it, that, that it's simple. So maybe it's better if it's simple. Yeah. 
the thinking, and we are in the genetic revolution right now, just like we were sort of in the neuroscience revolution 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. And so it used to be that people would think, okay, if you have a gene, it will express itself. Either it does or it doesn't. Epigenetics, we're talking about a gene that could be turned on or turned off. Now, turned on meaning something happens in the environment. That could be the environment of your body. So that could be, I mean, it goes into lots of detail about like methylization and things that I don't really understand. But so it could be something, you know, that changes in the chemistry of your body, let's say, that then sets off this gene or genes. And then all of a sudden you manifest a disorder. It could be a virus. I mean, we've seen that. I think we all know now that viruses mm -hmm. absolutely can cause diseases or they may not. So that's kind of what epigenetics is. The idea is that a gene can be turned on or turned off. And it can be turned on by a different chemical reaction in your body, mm -hmm. or it can be an outside environmental issue. And that environmental issue could be a trauma, it could be a toxin, or it mm -hmm. could be a virus, which is really a toxin. And that's yeah. a different way. And that's how pretty much everyone's looking at, at genes now. So it's not the question of what is the misophonia gene. There will probably right. be several genes that contribute to the, the, the manifestation of misophonia, and it will likely be epigenetic. It will likely be some people may be carrying those genes and just whatever, for whatever reason, they don't manifest this disorder and mm -hmm. others, others don't. I don't know if that made sense. I hope. Yeah. No, it totally does. Uh, to summarize, I mean, there's no like black and white gene that just right. completely you can like look under a microscope and tells you if you have it or not. But it's more uh, an interplay between that uh, that gene and how I think what you, by the way, how like ex a gene expressing itself is basically how it turns into a phenotype. Phenotype is like your you, what you right. actually are. So right. the gene turning it. Well it's said. like a computer computer code and then the website you know it's like the code Perfect. is the gene and then the website is like you <laughs> and so um and so if there's basically the environment can affect how that how you look like and, and whether it's slightly maybe yeah, yeah, <laughs> i no, get confused myself at the end but, but yeah no it's fascinating and i had not really considered that before but it makes a lot of sense and i think it's important evolutionarily wise right um Oh, uh, because I think we're right. constantly <laughs> evolving and is is misophonia I personally don't think it's like a, a defect is it is it something that can kind of like help us in the future or we need certain people who are extra sensitive to sounds we sure um, do I yeah. mean it's I'm so happy that you brought up evolution because my feeling about this disorder is that you know one of the things you ask in evolutionary medicine or evolutionary psychiatry or whatever is why did this trait or whatever you want to call it this disorder this trait whatever you're looking at why is it continuing if it wasn't adaptive it would you would it would die out so for example my feeling really my my deep feeling about misophonia is that it actually is an adaptive trait or was it isn't now it is not good for now but if you 
think back to, let's say, times that we were, and, and there are still some very few tribal societies, but if you think about the cue of sound and how it pr can protect you, and the fact that it could protect also your your kin, you know, your family, your your people. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And and I know Jane talks about this in her book with the the guard uh, super guards, right? Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. I, I know and, and your book too as well, which which I loved by the way. Thank and you, yeah, yeah you're, it was great. Um, and thank you for your contribution in that book. So I think the natural aversion to pathogens, right? And I don't want to name the triggers, but it's pretty obvious what they are, right? Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, gives you an advantage to survival. So I think we're pre-programmed to alert to that kind of stimuli. Now, if I was living out in a, you know, I don't know, a desert or whatever, and I was looking and I'm, you know, I, in order for me to survive within the group, I don't want to go near someone who it was, you know, making those pathogen sounds. Mm -hmm. The one sound, and I don't want to bring up the trigger sound, but that, that I've always thought about, why chewing, why chewing? And it literally, okay, this dawned on me the other night, and it might be a little out there, but I'm going to say it. Because I have thought about this for 20 years. Yeah, yeah, please, years. please. I've got some weird thoughts, too. Or not chewing, weird, but out I, there. I used to think maybe it's it, it, it'll tell you there's a predator there. Yes. Know? And I, I've thought, you know, then I also thought, why would you go into fight, flight, or freeze when someone, let's say you hear chewing. Let's say you're an animal. This is why I want to study animals, by the way, because we'll get to the basic real mm. processes of these mm. and we'll know how to help people. So if, and I, I, I pulled up actually something, uh, 2011, now I'm not going to remember his name, Mark something, but I can look it up, who talks about... And I'll, I'll go back to the predator thing, but so I'm kind of all over the pace, but no, back please, yeah. to the, you know, we don't want to get near pathogens and it's kind of normal if we want to survive. There is something called the behavioral immune system. And it was termed in 2011. And again, it's Mark something. And I apologize wherever he is. I don't remember his last name, but yeah, we'll he Google talked it. about these yeah. evolved behaviors that actually are like an immune system. They work like an immune system. Mm -hmm. How does an immune system work? Boom. You, you over, it overwhelms the rest of the system, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So this to me, I love that term. And I just discovered it the other night while obsessing on misophonia. Then I also thought to myself, why would you go into fight flight? If let's say, let's say I'm an animal and there's an animal chewing, I mean, we're all animals, but you know, then there's somebody yeah. chewing near me, a tiger or whatever. Then I thought, what if I wanted to get that food? And the only way to get it was to fight this animal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I thought yeah. it's not just fear from predators. And I, I thought, of, I don't know if I'm making any sense of deal. I was watching my dog of two dogs. And this little thing is sitting there watching me eat. And I thought, oh, how sad, you know, <laughs> poor little thing wants the food. Then I thought, if this dog was starved, it would attack me for the food, even though it loves right. me. And right. it made me realize that maybe part of that fight flight response is really rooted in the idea 
that we have to fight for food. Mm, yeah. I, I don't know. I'm develop, yeah. you know, I, I'm just putting it out there. Yeah. No, that makes sense to me, especially if, if, if you, if you talk about, um, this is pre-programmed from a, a, a long time ago, um, you know, in back in the, uh, you know, yeah. in the amygdala, kind of the roots of the brain. Um, it was a funny story. Uh, somebody I just interviewed uh, um, said, uh, yeah, you know, COVID, COVID would not have been a thing if they just let people with misophonia go look for coffers and just yes. deal with them like a canine unit in a police Yes, system. absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And, you know, the, the thing is, Adil, when, when we're talking about things that are so rooted, not in the neocortex, which is, you know, the part of the brain that right. in the, the... Evolved the, later. But yes. Yeah. How do you fight that? It is the mm -hmm. hardest. It's the same mm -hmm. thing with trauma, right? Trauma memories they are easy they come back they're more retrievable it's in your body how do we overcome something that is so innate and one of the reasons i get irritated by a lot of the treatments out there is i'm like this is too deep this is way too deep in a person to just treat it and cure it in a behavioral way yeah i think i think there's certain things you tools you can use to kind of yes. like in the moment Absolutely. kind of like uh, uh that help but um but yeah i think there there right there's a deeper component that's more uh instinctual exactly and that's <laughs> yeah. why i want to study animals right. or rodents really yeah you know because if we understand what these basic processes are we have a much better chance of knowing how to work against them, really. Right. And then uh, sticking with kind of one, um, since we're going with out, out there, uh, the ideas and thoughts, there, <laughs> there's uh, one other thing I, I had was like, try, just trying to think about like, you know, I'm always looking at, are, are there cases of this in, you know, in history that we hear about in history books? Uh, and, you know, there aren't, but maybe maybe there were, and they're just not written about. But I, I just got to thinking like, you know, back in the day, you're, you're, you didn't have like, a homogenous set of jobs like you had you kind of fell into your role based on whatever your whatever yeah. you were like and so yep. if maybe because we're forced to all kind of these have these sit in an office have these homogenous jobs that now these differences are being uh being uh accented because you know we're not the ones that are supposed to be sitting in a in an office no we're and not now we're noticing it Oh, so, I absolutely um, agree. I mean, and it's the same argument could be made for, you know, attentional disorders, for right. people, you know, ADHD, right. you know, hyperactivity. And a lot of people, uh, you know, years ago would say, well, how do you know, there are some kids who they just shouldn't be sitting in a class, you know, in the classroom, you know, that this isn't a problem in the child. It's a problem in the environment or in the interaction right. between the person and the environment. And I think that's right. very true of misophonia. And I think, I tend to think that it is actually on the rise. I mean, 25 years ago, I couldn't find, I, I think I told you this once, but I found one other person besides mm -hmm. my daughter and I that had these well, symptoms of what we now are calling misophonia. And I was everywhere looking. So I feel like it can't be, I mean, it's possible, but I feel like there's such a, there is a rise in this and it's not just everybody becoming aware but i think you're right yes I, that's I, I feel like right sorry go on <laughs> we're overloaded with stimulus stimuli i mean there's too much coming at us we're sitting we're not moving we're just you know and and 
the visual and the auditory, all the senses integrate and work better when they're integrated. How are our brains changing when we have constant input, constant? Doesn't matter if it's visual, if it's auditory, if it's tactile, the brain changes as we evolve. And I don't think we're evolving, and this is what you said, fast enough to keep right. up with this. Right, right, right. It's, it's kind of ironic that I think we, we kind of like, we kind of sit and stare at this at stimulation um, because we think it's relaxing us in some way, like, you know, when you're sitting with your phone or whatever. <laughs> Um, but it's 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 not maybe it's just not the right stimulation maybe it's too artificial but uh, I think it's um, one thing you know if you're watching you know kind of old style watching um, a program or an event or something on a screen but I think one of the things that's happening is all the pop-ups and the speed mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the all of that coming in together I don't know how people process that and that drains your resources and then misophonia is going to be worse if you have it. But having said that, that doesn't mean that parents shouldn't allow their kids to use screen time because it, I think it can right. be helpful if it, right. like you said, if it's the right thing. Like sometimes mm -hmm. I'll just watch penguins walking around. Yeah. You know, it sounds ridiculous for an adult, but it's like very soothing to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, the other thing, it is impossible to not use technology today for most people in the United States. Mm -hmm. And in fact, if you cannot use technology for whatever reason, if you're unable to afford a computer, you're at a great disadvantage. Right. So we can't just say everybody get off the No, computer. no, no. We can't. It's done. We're done. It's 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 here and <laughs> we need to adapt and figure out a way to to make it less yep. overstimulating. So you did mention, um, and I didn't want to eventually get into like visual triggers, mesokinesia. Um, do you, you know, in your, in your, in, in your counseling, is that a big part of your consulting oh, yeah. as, uh, along with misophonia? Because I do agree that like, I, I don't think, well, I don't know if I, I if um, that's the right term, but like, I feel like I've said, I feel like in five or 10 years, like it won't necessarily be misophonia. There might be another term because we'll find that it's, a combination of things like I think you've alluded to. How do you see misokinesia and other senses really, you know, in how you treat people? Okay, great question. I think the whole whole idea of misokinesia, which is so fascinating to me, that was termed by Arjun Schroeder. I may be saying his name incorrectly, but I have corresponded with him several times. And in fact, I have an interview with him oh. from way back when on my Psychology Today blog. And it was driving me crazy because misokinesia, if you break it down, means hatred of movement, right? Right. What he originally meant, and I was like, it's not just, it doesn't mean just the visuals. So what he meant, and boy, was he right about this. He was wrong about a lot of things, but that's okay. He was a student at the time and everybody was wrong. So, you know, but he was so right about this. When there are people for whom when you are watching someone else's movement, particularly that repetitive, habit-based leg tapping. Jimmy legs. Yeah, that kind of stuff. That kind of stuff that you are triggered. So that's one visual trigger. The other visual triggers, which now have fallen into this umbrella of misokinesia, so it's kind of not termed right, are the ones that are associated with the sound. Right, so right. We've got two things going on here. 
Yeah. And everybody I know that has misophonia, well, not everybody, but anecdotally speaking, most people I work with absolutely have the associated triggers, not necessarily that misokinesia type. Yeah, right. Kin kin kinesia comes from kinetics, which is strictly a movement. It's not just, yes. it's not just, you know, sight. Right, exactly. Miso-optical or something. Is, is yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think the term is, is great, actually. And it, you yeah. know, I mean, like, I know when people are pacing in front of me, I, I just mm -hmm. want to say, it's not quite as bothersome. And I don't think I get quite as much a reaction from a sound, but it's, 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 I'd say it's very unpleasant mm -hmm. <laughs> and it, it, I can't process it. And it gets me really like, you know, it may not be as strong as the sound because sound travels the fastest to the, the amygdala. Oh, really? So, okay. Tell, tell me yeah. more about that. Cause you know, obviously sound travels slower than, than light, but, um, right. But to the, so, there's other processes in the way. So, right. Yeah. Sound, the reason Joe Ledoux again, who's obviously I'm extremely enamored with his work. Oh, I have his books too. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, he once told me, you know, the reason I study auditory is because it, it's the stimuli, the stimulus that travels the fastest to the amygdala. Mm. And he told me this about 15 years ago. And I was kind of like, that's what precipitated that study too, um, that I was telling you about with the, rodents that he did and there are so to me you know if it's something visual that you're looking at in theory let's say if you're looking at a somebody doing leg tapping one of my favorites let me tell you <laughs> I, I can i can look away i've got some things i can do it's maybe hard to look away but i can do it you can't look away from sound you can't do anything and it's traveling the fastest to your fight flight system, which makes sense when we talk about evolutionary, because, you know, what's, I think the things that, you know, sound is, it, sound is a cue for danger. It's that simple. Right. No, that second part, I, I, had not, I, had not, I didn't realize that, that it takes, the, it's the fastest to get to the, to the amygdala. But I think you were saying, you were just saying something that I've said on, uh, also uh, on the podcast is like, I can, I can not look at something. I can, you know, hold my nose. I can not touch something. But even if I block my ears, I can still hear stuff. Like yeah. that's the, it's the hardest uh, sense to block. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. No doubt. No so doubt it's, it's doubt. the, it's the best choice. If evolution wanted to use a sense for alerting you of danger, that's the, that would be the best choice. Yes, absolutely. I, exactly. And I think, you know, once we, and I do, most of the people that I, you know, originally I thought, oh, this is the same as sensory over responsivity. Mm -hmm. But I, I take that back and I have taken that back because what I have found, and again, this is all anecdotal and some of the research is showing this as well. This is very specific to sound and visual. And then there's the, maybe the misokinesia part. Right. But when you start adding in olfactory, which, by the way, I am very olfactory sensitive. Um, when you start adding in tactile, when you start adding in everything else, it then becomes the sensory over-responsivity subtype of sensory processing disorder. I don't think, I, 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 from again, anecdotally, 
But I think most people, there maybe I would say 10%, 25%, just totally off the cuff, people have these other sensitivities. But for the most part, when you're talking about misophonia and people who experience that really elevated sympathetic nervous system arousal, it sounds and it's visuals. Yeah. yeah. So I don't yeah. think it's the same at the right. end of the day. But right. we really need more research because that could be something, you know, that's an important area of research. And it is happening. I have to say people are looking at that. So that's good. Yeah. Um, yeah speaking of research, one, one thing I've, you know, I've thought about and, um, is, you know, the, the, I've talked to you now, it's been like over, I was looking, it's like 180 just uh, mm-hmm. podcast episodes. And there's, there's always, um, and, and someone just sent me an article uh, called, literally called Walking on Eggshells today. And so one thing that comes up a lot is the ch- uh, in, in childhood, um, there's usually some situation where you are, you have to be on alert for something in your in your environment. I guess this comes back to epigenetics and, and whatnot. But um, I don't, I personally don't know anyone like really looking at the research, like looking at, um, uh, you know, that, that, that commonality that I've noticed where there's like maybe an alcoholic parent or there's some kind or schizophrenic or, or, or BPD or something um, that causes a child to um, kind of walk on eggshells and not be kind of like explained what's happening. And so, do you do you think about that? Do you do you notice that, or do you do you feel like that's I don't know? I... I think I think there's two ways to look at it, and and I think to some degree, psychology and psychiatry has done both of this. But again, the developmental work is so different than what you know that what creeps into the adult work. Some of it gets in. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple of of things. So any environment that is where someone feels not safe, whether it is a family environment, whether it is the neighborhood, whether it is the school, the not good, right? (laughs) It's just not great. And of course, we're going to react to that. Now, does that cause misophonia? I don't know, but here's the flip side of this. And here's the real question. Why does one person in what you're talking about, which is a traumatic situation, develop a traumatic response and another person doesn't? Right, right, right. Yeah. I've thought about and that. that's, yeah. And yeah. that's the question. So then you have to kind of look at what either go, how is the child born like a super responder mm-hmm. rodent? Mm-hmm. Did you just come into the world as with somebody with a more fragile system? I want that is, t-shirt. I'm a super responder. I'm a super uh, responder. Right. Do you come into the world more fragile? Right. And, you know, the other thing that was really interesting, I guess, in the late 80s, I could be a little bit wrong, but there was a lot of, and, and into, the, let's say, the early 2000s. So there was a lot of work on the, it was called the mother-child dyad, but we know that's wrong and we should be saying the caregiver-child mm-hmm. dyad. But the work, if anyone's looking for it, will be in mother-child dyad, (laughs) if you're looking to look it up. But a lot of work was done in terms of temperament and in terms of goodness of fit. And the idea of this is you come into the world, me, let's say I come into the world, 
And whoever is my caregiver, and often you don't have one caregiver, but let's just broadly mm -hmm. speaking, mm -hmm. do we fit temperamentally? Do we fit on a sensory level? So actually one of the papers I wrote had to do with actually, uh, I, I could send it to you, but the idea is some kids come into the world with a more fragile sensory system or a sensory system that just doesn't match that of their caregiver. So perhaps, and I've seen this, perhaps my daughter is over-responsive to sound and well-meaning grandma is extremely loud, extremely mm -hmm. intrusive, mm -hmm all over the place. Guess what happens? Trauma. Mm -hmm. Not because anyone did anything wrong. Right, right, right. Or anyone was malintended. So I think when we talk about the sort of trauma response that we see in misophonia, we have to ask, again, why some people and not others? Yeah. That's how we get to the bottom of how to treat it. Right. Yeah, you're right. I've had a lot of people come on and they've had siblings and it's not, you know, not effective. Right. Anybody right, else? I had triplets. Like, why right. one and not the other two? You know, right, so right. there's something to the, and it could be in utero. You know, it could be anything. We don't know, but we need to know more of. And and these these kinds of this kind of research that we're talking about is a lot less interesting to people because it doesn't give you the answers right away. Like, how do we cure this? How do we treat it? But it's Need, and, and we need those treatment studies. We need all of that. But we also need to develop, I think, much more higher level and sophisticated and integrative thinking about misophonia. We need to bring in research from basic neuroscience much more. We need to bring in old research from, let's say, the parent-child dyad, all of that, and integrate it. Because you know, all the questions you're asking, Adil, are all the questions that I ask. But the ones that get answered are the ones I think that may lead us or look like they're going to lead to an answer. But we need, I think, a lot more. Yeah, I mean, the stuff that you were saying that people found find uninteresting, I find those super interesting. Well, no, well I do so, too. Yeah, like I think I'm like you, because um, uh, yeah, I, I, mean, I guess my, my worry is that the, the if we're yeah if, like probably like you, if we're focused too much on the quote unquote non looking for the magic bullet, we might I I don't know if we're gonna find one, and so we need to I, be a little I don't bit more either. diverse and in I our think that's thinking. That's so true. Of unless the only. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, you know, one, the only magic bullet is well, even medication's not a magic bullet. Yeah, right, right. There's no magic bullet for, for mm -hmm. any of these things. And I think, you know, if you look at depression, let's say, or anxiety, you will see not, it is not, you know, it's not just treatment studies. You will see the evolutionary studies. You will see the medic, the medicine studies, the, right. you know, you will see people just think, you know, scholars thinking about what depression might really be. And with misophonia, we're just so at the beginning that we have this, you know, it's great we have more research than, than we have ever had, but we don't have all of that other informative research that helps us mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. think about misophonia. Yep. Um, yeah, so obviously like we're about an hour, hour, a little more than an hour into it. I mean, we can go keep going. I mean, even on that note, I'm like, is maybe misophonia is not profitable enough, you know, for 
for people to Actually, pursue, you know. <laughs> I will tell you a deal. Yeah. I think it's profitable and I think that will work for us. How do you tell people to be careful? How, you know, I'm. Well, maybe we should kind of have that as one of our, uh, our last topics is maybe just kind of like what to people who are looking for answers in a, in an environment where there are not a lot of definitive answers. You know, there's people writing stuff like yourself and Jane's book. But like, yeah, maybe some guidelines on how to how to tell people to uh, yeah. take care of themselves. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think great question. I think one thing that Chris of So Quiet, who of course you know, of course I know you know, <laughs> that we are talking about and that you know we always talk about is how do we get the lived experience mm -hmm. to the researchers? So that's number one. We need the researchers to understand the lived experience. And when, you know, I think we all have an instinct. Something's not right with this. And I think what happened with a treatment or a person or snake oil, whatever, salesman, I think one thing, what happens when you're desperate is you will, and we're all desperate, will do something that you wouldn't ordinarily do in the hopes that it works. And you think, well, how could it harm me? But I think what people have to realize is it is harmful. First of all, for children, once you subject a child to this nonsense, they start, and I've seen this happen, they lose trust in the entire helping field. Mm -hmm. So you are, you know, that's harmful. We know expo graded exposure therapy is absolutely contraindicated and harmful. How do we get that out there more? I don't know. I write about it incessantly. But I do feel like people right. say, but what if it's the only thing? It doesn't mean it works. So I think people have to really resist the temptation to do things that might be harmful. I think, for example, the, the, the therapy and treatments that are going on at Duke, for example, are not going to be harmful. They may, if they work and help you with coping skills, great. And that's what they're really based on. Mm -hmm. You know, no one's saying, hey, we can cure this. We can reduce your triggers. I mean, when you hear someone talking about that, walk away. If someone mm -hmm. says, I can reduce your triggers in three weeks, and that's not even how you measure misophonia, the reduction of triggers. So I think people have to really, unfortunately, still at this point, really do a lot of searching and find that which is the least harmful and also understand that you're putting your time or your child's time and your trust into people and that a failure in that interaction can be also I think traumatizing mm -hmm. and I've heard uh, you know there are yeah there, there are people saying that oh, I've had this funny I don't have it anymore um, and I've heard that when you dig into that, though, there isn't one thing that, first of all, we don't know how long that's going to last, but there's never one thing, the one thing that they're trying to sell that actually worked. It's it's kind of been a lifetime of trying many different things, probably things layered on top of each other that may help a little bit. And so um, I think that's wise to kind of like be skeptical of saying somebody is saying one thing is going to help you know exactly something, so. exactly i mean i can certainly say my misophonia is better but i'll tell you why it's better 
I'm 60. 25 years. <laughs> oh, no, yeah. you know what it is? I'm almost 60 years old. I don't have don't to look it, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. I have control over my schedule. I have control yeah. over my atmosphere so much. It's the same. My environment has changed, not me. So right. the mis if I were to go, if I were to be like a young mom again, out there taking my kids here, taking the, working, you know, with other people and, in, in, you know, other places, it would all be there. It's just that right now I'm able to stay home. Not that I'm saying people should always, you know, stay home, but I'm at a point in my life where it's the environment. Agency. Yeah. Right. So I have more agency, you know, and I think, so when people say my misophonia is better, we have to be cautious because is it that there was an internal change in you or did your environment change or both? Combination. Yeah. Yeah. Usually you do the people who get to that point where they feel confident to say that they've tried a lot of different things and have taken bits and pieces that have worked for them. And so that's, that's exactly yeah. what, and that's what coping skills are all about. You have to take mm -hmm. bits and pieces you know, when we talk about a multidisciplinary model for misophonia treatment, mm -hmm. and, and that's, you know, something I've always said you know, needs to happen. It, you know, you, you take little pieces of things, different disciplines to help yourself. And what I hope is that more people will work in that multidisciplinary fashion. You know, I work with a lot of OTs. I don't send somebody for OT for misophonia, but I will send somebody, for example, you know, to have, you know, a session with an OT who are great, you know, in terms of helping people self-regulate. If they need OT for other reasons, then sure, they'll go. But so I, you know, will send people and then I'll integrate that into my work. But that takes a, that takes a lot of extra work. Right, right. Um, yeah, fascinating. Um, Anything, anything else you want to share? <laughs> this is like super interesting. I'm gonna. I can't wait to edit this again and oh, to, take copious notes. Uh, please take my phone ringing out. But, uh, um, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's you know I really think it's so interesting to me, Adil, because you and I have had this talk about misophonia where we're really we're doing what I I, I would hope is higher level thinking about it, and we definitely need more of that why do we have misophonia as you asked is it a was it a as jane asked and her you know was it adaptive at one point and now here we're stuck with this that's you know how much is in you know are we increasing the reaction to stimuli because we're overloaded all of these things we need to think about and you know, research in the United States, well, I always used to say this, and, and Zach and I used to kid about this. It was really great to do research in the UK because you could think. And it was, you know, the uh -huh. stringency that we have to get something through an IRB, to get funding, all of that. No one's going to fund, let me let you think about misophonia here. So any mm -hmm. thinking, deep thinking that goes on is either because a researcher is extraordinarily interested and also has a much, you know, a broad understanding of a multidisciplinary research paradigm or treatment, or they're thinking about it because they're you or me, mm -hmm. right? So no one's yep. paying anyone to think about this. No and one's paying me. No one's paying, no one's paying <laughs> yeah. us to be. Right, exactly. And that's, that's, so that's part of the way it's kind of set up in the United States. Right, right. Um, 
yeah and then one the one thing i i was when i'm kind of like um feeling like uh, the, the world is against me sometimes i'm like well are people looking at me saying are you just overthinking this you know mm-hmm. it, i feel like in, 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 the, in the united states everyone talks about oh we should be thinking more about mental health until they tell you you're just overthinking it just you know right snap out of it <laughs> that's right and it's not a headline issue it's not a headline disease kind of thing it's exactly and i think that is why i make such a fuss about people calling it neurophysiological and the only person who came around to that was was in fact pavel jastrovoff who i don't know if you know whether you saw his article the neurophysiological model of misophonia and and the reason i pick that is because it's right. <laughs> it's a neuro, it's a neurological response that has physiological consequences. Of course, it also has emotional and mm. consequences. We know that, and cognitions, we know all that. But at its root, now, so when people say, oh, it's an emotional disorder, a psychological disorder, I get nuts because that's when you put it into the realm of do you, does that person really have it or can they just snap out of it? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, gotcha. it minimizes yeah. the experience, yeah, the lived yeah. experience. So I get very picky about that. And I do think one of the awareness efforts that we all have to do is really, and I know there was a consensus definition, but really, what are we going to call, how are we going to describe this? Because it's mm-hmm. so important. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Um, yeah, and I, I want to make sure that I'm not sloppy on <laughs> what I call it, what I call it as well. But, yeah, I uh, mean, you know, that's the crazy thing about medicine. It's like every medicine, you have different names for the same disease. It's 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 a mess. I mean, and, and this what's so awful is that this mess that, you know, gets we inherit this mess as patients or as those who need therapy. And we inherit the mess of this terminology that is, you know, in medicine as well. So I think, again, one of the awareness efforts is really coming to terms with how are we going to describe this in a way that subsumes every part of this and is accurate. Mm -hmm. And the reason that the problems exist because every field, so if you're psychiatry, you're going to describe it one way. If you're OT, you're going to describe it another. And, and that is part of, I think, why people will say, just snap out of it. Because how do you understand something that's not described correctly? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully, yeah. Hopefully, hopefully we'll get there. Um, we and... will. We will get there. We're getting there. If it's any consolation, we're moving a lot faster with misophonia yeah. than we ever did with sensory processing right. disorder. Right. Right. <laughs> that right. is a good thing. Yeah. No, that's great and uh i know we'll, we'll we'll i'll be there at the to call the shots when we, as that happens and i know you'll be there writing about it and, and obviously helping people so um um yeah jennifer i, I want to thank you thank you again for coming on it was super thank you. i hope it was encouraging i mean i feel like no. i would have never said any of this five years ago because there would have been no research to talk about so at mm-hmm. least now we can talk about the research yeah. and what's what should happen next and what's going wrong what's going right versus we need research. So, I, I mean, right. you know, I want to end on a positive note by saying we are a lot further along than we were five years yeah. ago and yeah. certainly 10 years ago. Right. Yeah. We can all uh, definitely celebrate that. Well, well, thank Yeah. Thanks again, Jennifer. Yeah. Well, it was great to talk to you, Adil. Thank you again, Jennifer. Incredibly thought-provoking conversation as always. Looking forward to having you back on in the future. 
If you liked this episode, don't forget to leave a quick review or just hit the five stars wherever you listen to this podcast. You can hit me up by email at hello at misophoniapodcast.com or go to the website, misophoniapodcast.com. It's even easier to send a message on Instagram at misophoniapodcast. You can follow there on Facebook and on Twitter or X, it's misophoniashow. Support the show by visiting the Patreon at patreon.com slash misophoniapodcast. The music, as always, is by Moby. And until next week, wishing you peace. <laughs>